0: Okay, so a pleasure to see you tonight. Excited about what we're going to talk about. Uh, one of the things that uh, is uh, unique about the study of uh, when, when we look at the book of Deuteronomy is a lot of us uh, kind of get to that book and, and in fact the, uh, the way that our word Deuteronomy comes out, second law giving is kind of what it really means. And it leaves the wrong impression. It leaves the impression that, well, you, if you already have read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, you could skip Deuteronomy because it's just the second law giving. And it's been given to uh, those Israelites who, weren't, uh, who were just children in the wilderness and now have grown up. So uh, it's, it's important, of course, to step back and say, well, wait a minute, that's really not the, not the idea. Uh, and so what I want you to do is want to talk about how Deuteronomy sets up the rest of the Old Testament and how the Old Testament ties in to Deuteronomy. And by the way, as I go through this, you're welcome to, if you have a question, I don't care, you can jump up and down or whatever, yell at me or something like that. Yes, sir. Yeah, but um, Barry, who, who wrote Deuteronomy? Who wrote Deuteronomy? Moses did. Okay. Yeah. So Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is written by Moses just before he dies. Okay. So he'd be he'd been about 120 years old at the time. So yeah. So he writes it about about that point. Okay. So uh, the first important thing about Deuteronomy is that it is actually written to a different group of people. It's written to a people who are ready to enter the land of Canaan instead of uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers who are talking about the generation that came out of uh, Egyptian bondage and, and of course after Numbers 11 ha- have, uh, uh, have a number of years they're going to spend in the wilderness before they enter Canaan. So it's written to them and there's a different set of questions for people who are about to enter Canaan. Well, what happens if we want a king? Uh, uh, what's the situation if Moses dies? Who's going to take over? Uh, how do we know a true prophet from a false prophet? There's, there's a lot of questions that are answered uh, that way. But the most interesting part of Deuteronomy is where we come to the end and Moses, God through Moses sets up for us the rest of the Old Testament history or the rest of what Israel is going to go through. So I'd like you to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31. And what we're going to notice is, is that God has Moses teach the children of Israel a song. Uh, as Shane Scott refers to it, it's, uh, it's Israel's national anthem. And their national anthem is, We Will Fail. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> so that that's, that's the national anthem. Can you imagine throughout the rest of your... Uh, time as an Israelite, every now and then you sing your national anthem, and the national anthem says, You will fail. And that's, that's basically what it is. So, notice in chapter 31, and beginning at verse 15, what God says then to, uh, to Moses and what he's supposed to do. 31, verse 15. The scripture says, And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them. So they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned other gods. Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness... Uh, for me against the people of Israel for when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey which I have swore to give to their fathers and they have eaten and are full and have grown fat they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant and when many evils and troubles have come upon them this song will confront them as a witness for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring for I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give them, so Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. Now the song is is given in chapter thirty two, and it's a rather lengthy song. I've always you know it can be kind of interesting to get to heaven and find out what the tune was and <laughs> all that to it, but uh, but it, it, it's really interesting, especially when you get. Uh, When you get down to verse 15 and the rest of the song is basically a song in which it does talk about how the children of Israel are going to rise up, they're going to become stubborn, they're going to turn against God, they're going to raise up their idols, uh, all of those things, and God is going to destroy them. And he talks about how he's going to destroy them and do all kinds of terrible things to them because they will not obey him. So what we see then is, is here is the prediction. God says, I already can tell you what's going to happen. I can already tell you you're going to go into captivity and all the bad things I'm going to do to you. There's very, very strong words that He uses. Then once He says that, then, then what we want to do is understand how the rest of the Bible is written. You know, one of the things that we rarely do is we rarely go beyond the message of a book and see how everything fits together in one giant puzzle. So let me show you a little bit about the uh, way that the uh, uh, Old Testament is put together, if you looked at it from a, in a Hebrew Bible. It's put together differently than in our Bible. And you can see... That the you have the first the Torah, which is the first five books Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then you have the former prophets, which include Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. So please remember that Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles are all one book in the Hebrew, not two. So that's why it's just listed that way. Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles include first and second, first and second, first and second. second. All right. So you'll notice that Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are are, are called the former prophets. And you will notice that this is really the story of the nation's failure. And when we read Joshua through, through Kings there, what we're discovering is how the song that Moses taught the people came to pass. Everything that he said would happen actually comes to pass. And so when you read Joshua's Judges Samuel Kings, when you think about those books, what do you think about? A lot of bad stuff. (laughs) You just think of a lot of bad sins that happen over and over again. Judges is horrendous. Joshua sets it up where people began to turn away and then judges they get really bad. And well King Saul he was great, wasn't he? And Eli's sons, they were fantastic. And even when you come to David's life, the first 10 chapters look great, but then 2 Samuel 11, you have Bathsheba, and everything goes downhill there, and then you get to the kings, and that just gets worse and worse and worse until it looks like the period of the judges. So whatever God said that was going to happen actually happens and is described in these former prophets. Then you have the latter prophets, which we're more accustomed to referring to as our as our prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets. And that's actually a commentary on the failure of the nation. So you have the historical part that tells you about the failure. And then you have the prophets who give commentary to why they failed and what they're doing wrong and identifying the things they need to do to get back right with God. So there there is that picture. Then the rest of the Hebrew Bible is referred to as the writings. And we recognize a lot of these like the poetic literature, uh, etc. But I want you to notice especially Ruth, Daniel, and Chronicles. Ruth, Daniel, and Chronicles all give a future hope for the nation. So what we saw in the in the uh, in the former writings the, the after the torah joshua judges samuel and kings we saw a fulfillment of what, what deuteronomy talked about and it looks bad but then in ruth and daniel and chronicles we get pictures of hope future hope so it's significant that the last book of the hebrew old testament is chronicles Because Chronicles is going to give the future hope of Israel. It's one of the reasons that Chronicles is... um, Well, it's sad that Chronicles has tended to be neglected by most of us. Uh, In our Bible readings, sometimes we we get through Kings and we go, Well, after all, eh, Chronicles is just a repeat. So why read Chronicles? Well, there's some significant things in Chronicles that there aren't in Kings or Second Samuel that we need to actually look at, and we'll talk about some of those uh, tonight. Okay, so let me stop right there. Any questions so far about this part of this? You can see how the Hebrew Bible sets this up a little bit better. Yes, yeah, Brother, um, in thirty-one, when Moses is singing the song. Is he on his way to the Promised Land of the other Israelites, or is he just by himself? Now, the, every, all the all the children of Israel are there. God's teaching him the song; he'll teach it to them. But he will not enter the Promised Land. Moses. Right. I know. Yeah. Is he on his way? No. Yeah, they're already there. They're already at the border. Oh. Okay. Yeah. When Deuteronomy is given, they're right at the border, ready ready to enter the land. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Okay. So let's let's take it from there, and I want to want to show you, basically two tellings so to speak of Israel's history how Israel's history is talked about from two points of view and this will help us then understand how Deuteronomy fits the rest of the Old Testament and how there is an, a second story that we uh, that we need uh, to see so let, let's take a look a little bit at this um, I'm going to check something here i One second, just make sure I didn't miss something there. I think I have slide out of order. Yes, that doesn't make sense. Okay, let me just do a switcher review. I've got that right <laughs> uh, I don't know how that how that happened that way I, I'm pretty sure my notes have it this way okay so uh let's take a look now as we look then at uh, the combination of these two uh, actually boy I will tell you what no I had it right the first time <laughs> I'm sorry that's that's uh, that's I had it in my mind different that's the, that's my first problem Okay, so I want you to see, I want you to basically see two tellings of this. When you look at Genesis through Kings, what you see is what we just pointed out. God is justified in bringing judgment on the people, okay? And and we have noted that. Deuteronomy said that was going to happen. And then you go Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and what do you see? You go, okay, God is absolutely justified in what he was going to do and what he foretold that he was going to do. Then you come to Chronicles, and Chronicles begins to retell the story. You might remember that part of 1 Chronicles that you tend not to read. <laughs> right? Nine chapters of genealogies. And man, you're just going kind to of go, do I really need to read this? Actually, there's some significant things there. But one of the interesting things is it begins with Adam, doesn't it? And it, goes for, it t- kind of retells the story in those genealogies by starting with Adam and then going into the time of the captivity, whereas kings concentrated more on the physical nation that came out of Abraham and doesn't pay a lot of attention to the nations that would have been separate from those who came from Abraham. And so you kind of see a retelling of the story, but from a different picture. It's written, the reason for this, it is written to the returning captives. So, if, when you read Chronicles, you need to think in terms of those people who came out of Babylonian captivity. Okay, anybody remember the year they came out of Babylonian captivity? Five thirty-six. Okay, five thirty-six BC. After seventy years of captivity, they come out. So it's around that time that Chronicles is given to them. Alright, so now you scratch your head and go, well, what would the people coming out of captivity, why would they need Chronicles? Because Chronicles is going to retell the history of Israel, but not tell it like Kings told it. If they had told it like Kings told it, they would have gone, we're doomed again. <laughs> We have no hope. Look at us. Woe is us. They'd be singing that song that Moses taught them all over again. We will fail. But Chronicles has a positive message. Chronicles has a message that emphasizes hope to them and stresses to them how they ought to live and can live in order to be pleasing to God. And so when you come to Chronicles, you see an emphasis on the temple plans first chronicles is filled with it David spends all this time as the architect of the temple you know we knew David wasn't going to build it but David almost did (coughs) he may not have put a hammer at anything but he had all the plans the worship plans everything and there's big emphasis on temple plans big emphasis on the proper kind of worship big emphasis on the faithfulness of faithful kings and prophets what's he doing He's trying to show this future of Israel's nation, here's what, God, what pleases God. Here's where God's taking you. He's taking you to a greater temple. He's taking you to greater obedience. He's taking you to uh, the kind of worship that really pleases Him. He's showing you how to be faithful, and He will save you. So it's an entirely different kind of message than what you and I were seeing then in the books of Samuel and Kings, and there's a big emphasis on the covenant with David instead of the Mosaic covenant. Now, when you read in the New Testament about the Moses covenant, especially in passages like Brent's been preaching on Second Corinthians chapter three, what's it called? What's the future of the covenant of Moses? The ministration of death. death. Exactly. It's the ministry of death. So what he's contrasting here in Chronicles, he's telling us about the future of the covenant with David as opposed... To the future of the covenant of Moses, which Paul later describes as a ministry of death, a hopelessness. But Chronicles is going to show us that covenant with David that actually has hope to to it. And that's what we want to pay more attention to as we go along. Now, let's draw now. Here's where I'm going to spend some time with you, showing you the contrast between the hopelessness of the kings and the hope. Of the Chronicles. Alright? So let's do a little search in our Bibles. Let's start with the end of 2 Kings in 2 Kings chapter 25. 2 Kings chapter 25 and verse 25. Of course, we have come to the to basically 586 B.C. when the temple is destroyed. And uh, here is the conclusion then of the kings. Second Kings 25, beginning at verse 25. All right. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama of the royal family, came with 10 men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Because Gedaliah was the governor that Nebuchadnezzar had set up over the city uh, after conquering the city. So now they're killing him. Verse 26, Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. By the way, was that what they were supposed to do? Go to Egypt? No, they were not. Jeremiah, remember, stood on his head trying to tell them not to go to Egypt. They went to Egypt. They died in Egypt. Just as God said would happen. The Babylonians went and destroyed Egypt. So there, there you go. Smart people. No. Uh, so they went and did that. But notice the very end of that, the fact that they went to Egypt. Where are now the Israelites? They're in one of two places. They're either in Egypt or Or they're in Babylon. They're right back where they started from. (laughs) Where did they start from? Well, Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees. He had left there. God had called him out of that. Now where's Israel back at? They're back in the Chaldean nation. Where had God called them out of? He'd called them out of Egypt and brought them out of bondage. Where are they now? They're back in Egypt. They're back in bondage. What happens when you decide to turn away from God and follow your own ways. You end up in the back in the bondage again. You remember Peter talking about the latter end is worse than the beginning. And indeed in this case it was. The latter end is far worse than the beginning. Here they are back where they started from. Uh, a people uh, without a God, without a nation, without a people, without, without any hope really as far as they could see from Second Kings and the end of Second Kings. Now, notice one other part of this. Notice this next section here, beginning in verse uh, 27. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, Abel Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments and every day of his life dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. And it's interesting how the Scripture says there in verse 27 that Abel Merodach graciously freed Jehoiakim. Now, you remember Jehoiakim? He was the king that reigned in 597 B.C. for only three months. Son of Josiah, he was wicked just like all the other sons, and, by, and Nebuchadnezzar came and took him away captivity. And here, 37 years later. So he was like a punk kid around 20 or so. I forget, 21, 22 years old. Something like that when he became king. And here we are 37 years later. So he's 57, 58 years old. Something like that. And all of a sudden, out of the clear blue sky, the end of the king starts. It just just, just decides, to, decides to end with and Jehoiakim was taken out of prison and set with all the other kings and lived the rest of his life with a regular uh, piece of sustenance and food and all this. Why? Why would kings end that way? After all the terrible things, Jehoiakim was the last rightful king of Judah. You know, Zedekiah came after him, but Zedekiah was not ever considered by the people as the rightful king. Jehoiakim was. He was still alive. He was in captivity. Zedekiah, in fact, was killed, uh, you know, with his sons and all that. His eyes put out, and he eventually died in captivity. But Jehoiakim is the rightful king. So here's the very last of kings. And what does God do? I'm giving you just a little peephole of hope. Your king, the king who is the descendant of David, is still alive. And you remember what I promised David? I promised David that I would always keep his kingship and his lineage alive. Here is the hope that God had given David. Remember the promise? Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, My steadfast love, which is basically his loyalty to the covenant, even when it's not deserved. God says, My steadfast love will not be taken away from Him. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Now, David didn't have to bargain with God for that. David didn't have to make some kind of... uh, There was not not a covenant like, if you do this, I'll do this. God just says, here's what I'm going to do. This is a unilateral covenant by God. It's a covenantal promise. Remember the Mosaic Covenant? Quite different, if you obey me i 'll keep you in the land i 'll do this and this, if you do this, then I do this if you don 't do this, then this is what I will do in this particular case, God even says that if if I have any of your kings, any of your descendants who do not serve me i will I will discipline them with whips, but my steadfast love I will not remove. so here is this promise that God is making to David and Jehoiakim. Being taken out of prison in the 37th year gives us a little peephole of hope. Okay? So, let's take that then and let's notice some comparisons now between uh, these two uh, covenants and between kings and chronicles. Hope is given in the Davidic covenant. No hope is given in the Mosaic covenant. So when we look at Deuteronomy, Joshua Judges... Samuel, Kings, we think hopeless. But when we look at books like Ruth and Daniel and Chronicles, we get a picture of hope. And the picture of hope comes because of the Davidic covenant, David's covenant, not because of the Mosaic covenant. Let's notice how that's illustrated now between the Kings and the Chronicles. Now, you remember that when Saul was king, uh, and we read about that in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, isn't that depressing? <laughs> you know, we have all these hopes. Here is Saul. God makes him king. He stands head and shoulders above all the people. He seems like a humble guy. He's even hiding among the baggage when they announce him. He, he's, he's a little uh, afraid. And we, we say, oh, and all Israel goes down. Here's the great king. And he just ends up to be an utter failure. And, and, and you know, by the time you get to the end of First Samuel, you're going, get this guy out of here. <laughs> I mean, he even wants to kill his best captain. What in the world is the matter with him? And so, we, you know, we're fed up with him. Then David becomes a king. And God says, I've sought after a man who would be after my own heart. What a beautiful person we see in David. Uh, a man who, who doesn't act like he's the big shot king, who doesn't go around whacking people's heads off just because they diss him and don't speak well of him, even when he has to escape Jerusalem. Uh, Shimei curses him and throws dust at him and he doesn't let anybody kill him. So it, it, he just has a whole different heart. We're so hopeful. And then chapter 11 of Second Samuel. And it just lets the air out of us. Here is David not only stealing another man's wife, but then murdering her husband by the hand of the Ammonites in order to cover up his sin. And the hopes of a good king are just dashed. The rest of 2 Samuel is just as horrendous as Judges or the days of Saul. His family participates... In similar sins as David. Adultery and murder. And it just goes on. And the hope of Israel is all deflated again. But, when you come to Chronicles, let me ask you, what's David's story in Chronicles? Well, you can search high and low in Chronicles and you're not going to find any mention of David's sin with Bathsheba. Isn't that weird? (laughs) The monumental sin that defines the book of 2 Samuel just is washed away, blotted out of the remembrance of God and the remembrance of Israel. As they read that book, you look high and low and there is nothing about the sin of David in in that story. And that alone, tells you what God's doing in Chronicles. He's showing us what happens when He fulfills His promises for His people. David obviously was humble. David was repentant. We can read the Psalms in which he talked about his confession of sins like Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, which are very, very strong penitential songs teaching us how we ought to have that same attitude And God so forgives David that you do not find it in the book of Chronicles. It's just blotted out. It's a beautiful picture. Now, there is one sin of David that is mentioned in both Kings and Chronicles. And it happens to be the sin of of David that was numbering the people. Pointing out here, we truly see David as a type of the Messiah just because uh, David is the builder of the temple. He's the one who sets this up and the Messiah would do the same thing. But I really want you to notice this one sin that Chronicles does mention. It mentions the sin of him numbering the people. So let's go over to 2 Chronicles chapter 21. 2 Chronicles chapter 21. And we'll look beginning at verse 21 uh, excuse me, I said Second Chronicles. I want First Chronicles. Excuse me, excuse me. First Chronicles, chapter twenty-one, verse twenty-five. Okay, so here is where. Do you remember the story here? Uh, here is where uh, David had numbered the people, and God had given him a choice of the destruction that would come upon him, and he chose. Uh, to put, be put in the hand of God three days plague and God has plagued the people and, hundreds, and thousands upon thousands of people are dead and uh, David stops the spread of the plague by buying the threshing floor of as Chronicles refers to him Ornan uh, for 600 shekels of gold and you'll see then in verse 25 so David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site and David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back in its sheath. Now you might recognize from your studies in Leviticus to offer burnt offerings was making an atonement. Peace offerings suggest that they had God and 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 men had come back into fellowship again. So now notice what happens at the site. Kings doesn't tell us about this. Verse uh, 28. At that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering uh, for, for Israel. So now notice what happens. The story of David's sin and his repentance ends in a blessing so that the very site where... His offering stopped the spread of the plague on Israel. That very site becomes the site for the future temple. It's the site for the building of Solomon's temple. And of course, uh, even after that's destroyed, the temple being rebuilt uh, in in, uh, 516 BC, uh, BC. And so you see the very place where mercy was shown is now the place where God's temple will be and where men and women can turn and pray toward that place, as Solomon said, and be forgiven of their sins. So you see mercy shown in the midst of a sin that David commits. So why does Chronicles repeat the sin? Because he wants to show that God gives mercy in the midst of the sin that he commits and the hope then that Chronicles even shows in that regard. All right, how are we doing? Questions, comments or anything? Okay, we good? All right, so uh, Chronicles then ends with not what kings would end with. Chronicles ends with the decree of Cyrus instead of ending with captivity. Of course, what was the decree of Cyrus. That's right, everybody gets to go home. See how Chronicles ends with a hopeful sound? Instead of kings ending with, they all went into captivity, and God you know just wanted to destroy them, and they just don't hear anything else. There's no hope. But here, Chronicles ends with hope. The decree of Cyrus to bring them out of captivity. Of course, you connect that with the prophecies that both Jeremiah and Isaiah gave. You you see, of course, the, the importance of that. Now, let's let's notice something else. I want you to notice the kings of Manasseh and Josiah. And I want you to notice the contrast between how God speaks of Manasseh in the book of Kings as opposed to how He speaks of Manasseh in the book of Chronicles. So let's start with 2 Kings 21. 2 Kings 21. And we'll begin reading at verse 10. Every time I read about Manasseh, I, I, I just shudder to think of being a citizen in Jerusalem during his reign. You know, we we think of horrible people like Hitler and and some of the present day uh, leaders that are are so wicked and things that they do. But <laughs> check out Manasseh. 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 10. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disasters the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they will become prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem with one end to another, besides the sin that he had made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So Manasseh is just, he's just horrible. And you'll notice that God says that in those days they committed more abominations than the Amorites before them. Now that would be the Canaanite nations. Now you think about that. <laughs> I mean that is... You can't get lower than that. And, and then you think, how do you do worse than the Canaanite nations? And yet Manasseh did. He did worse than what the Canaanites had done before. Uh, murderous... You know, if, if you were an innocent, righteous person, you might as well just... Uh, get prepared because Manasseh is going to kill you. He couldn't stand the righteous. He burned children in, in the fire, including his own children to the god Molech. He did all these horrible things. And God says, okay, that does it. I'm going to wipe Jerusalem clean. And that's going to be the end of it. Take a look over in chapter 23 now. This is when Josiah comes around. Now, Josiah reigns about three years after Manasseh dies. Manasseh's son Ammon becomes king, he only reigns two years, and then Josiah comes along. So let's see what we see about the reforms of Josiah. 2 Kings 23 verse 24, beginning. 23 verse 24. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book uh, that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all uh, the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after. And so here we see Josiah coming, and he reverses everything that Manasseh did. Now, uh, you know what you and I think about that time? We think, oh good. Everything's back to the way it should be. But just because Josiah changed things, Didn't mean the people had changed their heart, had they? Josiah forced it, because and even with his own children. As soon as he died, I mean, just like that, they turned that temple into an idolatrous worship, and everyone went back to idols. There was nothing in the heart of the people like there was in Josiah. But now I want you to notice. On Dan, he does all these reforms. But now look at Second Kings twenty-four, one through four. In the days, in his days, that's uh, this is the uh, days now of Jehoiakim. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done. And also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Okay. Manasseh stopped, you know, had reigned until 642 BC. Jehoiakim is reigning way on down in 606 BC. And here comes Nebuchadnezzar, and God says, I'm letting him do it because of what because of what Manasseh did and all the sins he committed I'm still remembering those sins and I'm going to wipe them out because of the sins of Manasseh so it's, it's like everything Josiah did didn't make any difference to God he's still doing it because of the horrible sins that Manasseh had committed and, and, and the judgment is going to come regardless he's bringing the hammer down nothing's going to change that alright there's King's story let's notice Chronicles story don't you notice how different Chronicle story is than Kings? Go over to Second Chronicles chapter thirty-three. 2 Chronicles chapter thirty-three. All right, just first notice the first couple of verses. Second Chronicles thirty-three. Manasseh was twelve years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he gives a whole thing of it. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, erected altars to the Baals, and made Asheroth, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built... He built... uh, turn page here he built altars in the house of the lord of which the lord had said in jerusalem shall my name be forever verse uh, six he even burned his sons as an offering to them in the valley of the son of hinnom so it's all this terrible thing uh, that he did now skip down to verse 10 the lord spoke to manasseh and to his people but they paid no attention Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Do you By the way, do you remember reading that in the Kings? No, there was nothing about that in Kings. Verse 12, And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He put a command of the army in all the fortified cities of Jerusalem. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord. And in Jerusalem, he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and thanksgiving. He commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in high places, but only to the Lord their God. Wow! <laughs> kings didn't tell us about that. Kings didn't even mention anything about Manasseh. All the kings told us was, man, is God going to destroy the nation because of what Manasseh did? No doubt that was going to happen. Look on now down at verse 18. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel and his prayer. And how God was moved by his entreaty, and all his sin and his faithlessness and the sites on which he built high places and set up the asherim and the images before he humbled himself and. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. What do you see? God was moved by the prayer, the humility, the humbleness, and the entreaty that Manasseh gave to him. Can you think of somebody worse than Manasseh? <laughs> Yet, yeah, we would think of Ahab and Jezebel. And yet, when we read earlier in Kings, it pointed out that Manasseh was going to get the punishments that Ahab and Jezebel got. He was the worst of the worst. And he was going to get all the punishments that Ahab got. He was going to get the destruction that Ahab, the house of Ahab got. He All these things were going to happen. And yet, you come to Chronicles... God is moved by His prayer and His humbleness and His entreaty for mercy. Who's God? That even Manasseh. i got to tell you, when you go back and you just read through all the things that Manasseh did, do you think about something? You're one of the innocent people in Jerusalem. You and your family and your children whom Manasseh murdered. And the day of judgment comes and God brings you into His heavenly home and sitting next to you is Manasseh. And you turn and you say, Wow, look at the steadfast love of the Lord. After all, who are the first people who became Christians? Murderers of Jesus. Now when you think about your God, and who He is to you, and what He is to you, and those many, many times that you and I both have looked at ourselves in the mirror and said, I have a hard time believing He can save me. You need to remember Manasseh. And you need to remember the mercy of God and the steadfast love of the Lord who would save even a person like Manasseh, even a person like David, even a person like those who put Jesus on the cross. This is who God is. And it is difficult for us to fully wrap our minds around and accept that God would do that and show that kind of mercy for somebody that bad. And yet, you and I need to look at ourselves and say, okay, that's what we're looking for too. That kind of mercy is what we're seeking as well. So in Chronicles what you see is God filling the temple. When you get to the uh, beginning of 2 Chronicles and Solomon builds the temple, remember what happens? Glory of the Lord fills the temple. When did that happen before? Tabernacle, right. Tabernacle completed, Exodus chapter 40. Glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. Then Solomon builds the temple. Glory, the Lord fills the temple. Then, at the end of Kings, what happens to the temple? Left, right? Five eighty six BC, Jerusalem and the temple are left. All right. Then seventy years later, five sixteen. Who's the guy that rebuilds the temple? Leads the rebuilding. Zerubbabel, right? Big old long name. Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. And when the temple is completed, what happens? Nothing. The glory of the Lord does not fill the temple. Now that's interesting. And yet, Ezekiel gave a picture in Ezekiel 40 through 48 of a new temple that was coming in which the glory of the Lord would fill that temple. In fact, you have a prophecy about it. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Very last of the Old Testament. Just before God sets down the pen of inspiration in the Old Covenant. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Notice what he says. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Alright, so Jesus shows up in the book of Matthew and you see it pictured in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and He enters the temple. What happens? They reject Him. He cleanses it, casts out the money changers, etc. But they reject Him and murder Him. And then, the result of that is the glory of the Lord does not enter that physical temple, but instead God now dwells in His new temple. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 2? Tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And what does He raise up? He raises up Himself and His body as the new temple. The glory of the Lord filling us Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. He made him, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He has filled us with his glory. Why? So that we can be his image spreading His name and His glory throughout the world. And of course, in the Ephesian letter, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul brings that chapter to a close by talking about what God has done uh, in His new temple. Ephesians 2, we are built, or verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are built together into a dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. All right, so here is the picture of what Chronicles is doing. It's bringing us to the new hope, filling us as the new temple, and showing that hope. So here's what you have. You have two stories. The first story is our failure and our inability to keep the law. The Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of death. We could not keep it. But the second story is what we're interested in. The second story, completed by Chronicles, is that God's covenant of steadfast love that was given both to Abraham and David is our hope and our fulfillment. So two stories laid side by side. Man cannot save himself. Man cannot be saved by law. Man will be saved only by the covenantal promises that God made through David. Questions? Anything that needs to be clarified? right very good uh i hope that kind of puts things together at least as you're reading the old testament you can put these books in categories now and you go ah you know here's an illustration the mosaic covenant here's an illustration of the davidic covenant that god made that is ultimately the covenant that we have today so very good yeah george you know we would assume Yeah, he fall back again yeah. no uh, you know I, I think the last things that uh, that that we would assume that he did not fall back after that when he did that in his life is hard to say we would assume though that it was toward the end i mean you would kind of think that that's more the last maybe two or three years or something like that but we're just not given any information as to how old he would? Well, I would have liked to have known that. <laughs> that same thing. But it seen by Chronicles that when he makes the change, it's a permanent change. And he, uh, he does not uh, go back on that. So, But that's interesting, isn't it? Because Kings, Kings acts like he doesn't care if he did change. Because Kings is showing you the end result of a man's life according to law. Justice must be rendered. Chronicles shows the end when God's mercy is presented. And of course, who saved Manasseh? The blood of Christ. That's who saved Manasseh, just like us. Can you imagine that picture of the angel standing with a sword on ah, the threshing floor? I know. And 70,000 already dead and ready to destroy the rest of them. I know. Said, put, it, put it back. Put it the back. Shoe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What what a, what, a picture. An angel standing there with a sword. Yeah, and, and it kind of reminds you of the angel that guarded the uh, garden of Eden, you know, with the sword. You shall die. You shall die. You shall die. And it just pictures that. And yet, then chronicle shows put it back. Great point. Great point. Put it back. Okay. Hey, I enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed our time.